Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hello there. Beginning of March, COVID-19 hit the U.S. and had a dramatic impact on the restaurant industry. This very sad situation had a ripple effect in the whole restaurant supply chain and their purveyors. In Ohio, west of Cleveland, a family farm was directly impacted. The chef's garden farm has made their business in supplying unique vegetable, herbs, roots, blossom varieties to top chefs across the country. My guest today is farmer Lee Jones from The Chef's Garden. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Welcome to another episode of Flavors Unknown. Thank you for listening today. If you are new to the show, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, I have a conversation with trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders from different regions of the U.S. You will find the show notes from this episode on the website flavorsunknown.com. Let's welcome Farmer Lee Jones to the show. Hi, Farmer Lee Jones, and welcome to the podcast Flavors Unknown. I'm really uh, pleased to have you as a guest uh, this morning. Well, thank you for having me. No, it's a, it's a pleasure. So, uh, I mean, how are you doing? I want to ask you, and how bad is the situation for you guys, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic? Well, we're doing okay as far as uh, health and safety. Food safety has always been really uh, important to us on the farm, but we're doing triple, we've uh, tripled our sterilization methodologies and uh, everybody's getting temperatures checked and lab coats and hairnets, but uh, it, it certainly, it's affected us in a grand way. Over the last 37 years, 100% of our revenue has come from working directly with chefs throughout the United States and some internationally. We ship some over to Hong Kong and Dubai and other countries. But of course, the coronavirus uh, hit and all the restaurants were shut down. Obviously, there are some that are trying to you know make things happen um, with carry out and delivery. But that's a pretty small percentage. It's definitely affected us in a in a grand way. Yeah, so it's definitely a very difficult time for you guys because everything, as you just said, and everything that you do is with the chefs in mind. So can you maybe take us and tell us, take us back into like the whole adventure of the chef's garden and how this adventure started with uh, with the chefs? Well, interestingly enough, it kind of feels like we're Kind of back, back in time, in that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Back, yeah, back in time. Uh, my father was uh, in commercial vegetable production. This is this is an amazing microclimate. We're we're two point nine miles inland from Lake Erie, and Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes, and it's also the warmest. And the soil that we're on is all old lake bottom. And at one point, there were over three hundred and thirty vegetable growers in this county. Now. As near as we can figure, it was the largest concentration of truck farmers, vegetable farmers of any county in the United States. Now, you can say, wait a minute, you can go out to California and you can find counties that are 100 percent agriculture from north, south to east to west. But they're owned by 30 farmers that each have 30,000 acres. These were small family farms. A large farm at that time would have been 
100 acres, because that's about all one family could take care of. And they were called truck farmers. And what that meant was that as soon in the spring that you could plant, you started planting and you planted every day until you got to the fall where you were sure that when you planted, that it probably wasn't going to make it unless you got a really late fall. And so if you can, let's just say, hypothetically, you started planting April 1st and on greens and radishes and lettuces, you could move now to May 1st and you start harvesting. So every day you're still planting, but then from May 1st on, you're harvesting what's ready, you're washing it, you're packing it, you're loading it in a truck, and you're taking it to a farmer's market. Entirely different farmer's market than what we visualize today when I say farmer's market. So when you're talking about that time, can you just uh, specify a little bit what years you are referring to here? In I'm referring to like in the 1930s and the 1940s. Cleveland has amazing ethnic diversity, which is one of the reasons that makes Cleveland so cool, because there's so much depth of history and culture. And if you think about Jewish and Slovakian and Hungarian and Russian and Italian and on and on and on, and every one of those immigrants that came into this region moved into communities and they had their own neighborhoods and they had their own grocery stores and they had their own grocery store buyers. And if you think about the hundreds of family-owned grocery stores that existed, and this is before roads and refrigeration had really developed to the point where there was really any outside competition. This is pre-chain grocery stores. And so those farmers would go in and by about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, midnight, hundreds of grocery store buyers would meet at farmer's markets and the farmers would develop rapports with each of those grocery store buyers and they would grow specific things for them. And then the farmers would go home and then they would be home by two o'clock in the morning. They'd sleep for a few hours and then get up and harvest again and plant again. And they were truck farmers. So they really did quite well. They had a, a captive audience. They didn't have a lot of outside competition. But as roads and refrigeration, by the mid-40s and the 50s, as roads start and refrigeration started getting better, then larger farms could do it on a more efficient scale, and the economy of scale kicked in. And one by one, those family-owned grocery stores were pushed out. I mean, if your listeners can think about and go back to their childhood and think about their hometown and think about the family-owned grocery stores that were perhaps there but are no longer there. It's the same thing that happened with the family farms, because one by one, those family farms couldn't compete with the larger sure. volumes. I mean, it is disappear with industrialization, yeah. yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Now, my father was working cooperatively. He didn't have a co-op, but he worked with about 65 other growers from our community. And he invested in hydrocooling, packaging, palletization, bundling, and was competing with larger farms from Florida, from Phoenix, from Arizona, from California. And they competed pretty good for, you know, quite a, from the period of about mid sixties to the early eighties. And they packed all under one label. I can remember my dad loading 10 to 12 semi loads of produce, palletized produce a day in the summer season, you know, in that 70, in the period between the mid sixties and early 80s. One by one, those 65 growers were continued to go out just opposite of what we're experiencing today, lowest interest rates in the history 
of the United States right now, they're talking about even some 1% money and one At that time, it was, what, it was like 15, 20. It was one. It hit, it actually hit 22% in the early 80s. My parents got wrapped up in that and they had a very devastating hailstorm and it wiped out all the crops. They couldn't pe- repay the loans. And when I was 19 years old, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mom and dad, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that were there to s- celebrate our failure. And they auctioned every single tractor off, every single piece of equipment, my mother's car, and and our home. And uh, uh, we talking literally about crisis. Called. That was that was like really the you hit the bottom, you know, at that time. And oh, my family did. The, yeah, yeah. It was it was. I can't even fully describe the pain of seeing my parents work so hard, non-drinkers, non-smokers, hadn't missed a day at church in twenty-five years, and. At 19, I'm the oldest in the family, and to stand there with them and see their entire life's work be auctioned off a piece at a time was uh, it was a devastating day, devastating period for sure. And and so so what happened because uh, they had to uh, go back and uh, selling at um, at the farmers markets, you know, at at that time. And so yeah, I I could tell you stories you wouldn't even believe. I mean, if you know anything about a farmer, they never throw anything away, and part of that goes back to kind of the the depression days and you know there was a point where gas was rationed and and you couldn't buy a new car because all the steel was being you know used to make army tanks and so there were periods of time where you couldn't buy a vehicle you had to patch up the old one and so my dad never threw anything away and and actually at the at the sheriff sale the auction the foreclosure there were three trucks that were so banged up and ragtag that nobody would even bid on them so we patched those up. We went to a neighbor and begged to rent 50 acres from him, told him that we couldn't pay him before we started farming that year. We would have to pay him at the end of the year and that we might not even make it through the year. And if we did, we'd pay him double the rent. And we did without a lot of things, but we made sure he got his rent. And we can continue to still rent from that same family. But those trucks probably shouldn't even have been on the road the license plates were invalid and we muttered them over. And, you know, some of them, we had one, we called it the two man truck. One person drove it and the other person actually had to hold the roof on as you were going down the road. And I mean, it's, but we did, we started back at farmer's markets and it was kind of where we had started, you know, in the business early, early on. These are farmer's markets like we visualize today. Interestingly enough, you know, farmer's markets today are at a historic high. In the 80s, farmers markets were at a historic low. You know, my grandmother's generation were great cooks. My mother's generation, and I guess I will just speak for my mom, and I hope she doesn't hear this, but my mom is a terrible cook. My <laughs> grandmother was an amazing cook. But, you know, my mom's generation, my mom is 79. That generation, whatever their parents were doing, wasn't cool anymore. And of course, that's that period. You remember the frozen TV dinners? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, you know, with the nasty green beans and the corn and the uh, carrots, yeah. frozen carrots, and the tray were like inst- bright blue. Yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> the instant mashed potatoes and the yep. Salisbury steak. We thought it was so cool that we could, you know. So this eat is what that. you grew it, up. You grew up with, it, or at least yeah, your, I mean, your it teenage was, years. <laughs> yeah, it was convenience food. Yeah, and you know, they weren't gonna. Mm. My mother's generation wasn't gonna waste all this time, you know, cooking half a day. My grandmother would spend a half a day cooking 
for the family. And my mother's generation said, there's more to life and I'm going to have a career. And so the convenience thing was great, but I think it went too far. And we took our eye off in America. We took our eye off. Where's the food coming from? What's the integrity of the food? Because it all became about the convenience factor. And it was that was good, but it went too far. And so we lost our way. And so in the last 30 to 35 years, and this isn't my numbers, these are you can you can find these, you know, in any medical records, a 3000 percent increase in the last 40 years of kidney, liver, heart, cancer, disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity and allergies. I would be willing, well, I wouldn't bet the farm, but I'd be willing to make a gentleman's bet. There are any of your listeners that don't have one or more people in their immediate family or circle of friends that doesn't suffer from one or more of those diseases. It's not sustainable. It's not a sustained 3,000% increase in 40 years. Now, 40 years may sound like a long time to somebody that's, you know, 20 years old, but as a 58 or 59-year-old, life's short. And to to ha- see that kind of change in a dramatic fashion the wrong way is pretty pretty scary. Yeah, absolutely. And we will go back to this uh, discussion about uh, you know the connection between the way how people eat and and health and you know what you think about this. But uh, let's let's go back to the situation that so you guys uh, you were selling back at the farmers markets and then suddenly something happened that yeah. make yeah. Uh, now the the connection with the world of chefs and change well, the picture I, for you guys. Yeah, we. My dad was selling at the West Side Market in Cleveland. My brother was at Woodland and Orange in Cleveland. And my mother was at a flea market in Amherst. And my grandmother and aunt were selling out of the back of a Ford Fairmont at the Sandusky Farmers Market. And I was at East 152nd and Coit in Collinwood, which is east of Cleveland. And it's there that I met a woman and she was a chef. We really knew nothing about chefs because it wasn't our world wasn't about chefs. We just didn't, you know, this lady had a white coat on and she was knowledgeable and attractive and she was a flirt. And <laughs> I was, tw- you know, 21 years old. And yeah, I actually dated her a couple of times, but um, I was way out of my league. She was very knowledgeable, <laughs> but she took us under her wing in a very kind and gentle way. And she educated us, but she had turned, she had trained in Europe and she, you know, had seen a different world. And she said, I want you to grow for me products without chemical. I want you to grow products without uh, synthetic fertilizers. I want you to grow for the flavor of the vegetable. And she said, I think that there would be enough chefs in America to support you if you'll do this. And she was, she was looking for what she had experienced in France and she couldn't find it here. Because if you remember Earl Butts, Secretary of Agriculture in the United States, his quote, his infamous quote, get big or get out, was the way that that agriculture was going in the United States in the 70s. That is a quote that goes down in infamy, get big or get out. And so farms continue to take advantage of economy of scale. And of course, who's making the money? Pharmaceutical companies and the chemical companies. They saw a little window. They could go to farmers and say, hey, we can reduce your cost because in the commodity world, the farmers have no control over the price that they get 
for the commodities that they produce. The only thing that they can do is try and maintain the costs of their products. So the chemical companies say, look, you won't have to plow. You won't have to cultivate. When you plant, you spray, you kill everything other than the, you know, modified, the genetically modified corn or soybeans or wheat, and you reduce costs and they stay in business. And so that allowed us to begin to change the direction that we were going. And that's a, unfortunately, that's a very, very sad thing. Yields increased, price went down. It's all predicated by supply and demand. And so, so, you know, here was this lady saying, you know, let's go back to growing this for the flavor without the chemical, yeah, yeah, yeah. without the synthetics. And then, so since then, there's a lot of like famous chefs like uh, Charlie Trotter and Thomas Keller, Daniel Boulud, you know, Jean-Georges, Jose Andres, and, you know, Andre Zimmers, and, you know, a lot of others that have worked, you know, with you guys. I mean, can you share like maybe like an example to illustrate how you work with uh, the chef, like the fun starts to finish? Well, early on, um, Jean-Louis Paladin was a, yeah. a highly touted chef from France that came to the Watergate Hotel. And, you know, he was very gregarious. He was very outspoken. Mm-hmm. He was not shy. And, you know, basically his message was, your food is shit in America. If you want to grow for me, you must figure out how to grow. And a lot of... And, <laughs> I like your French accent. <laughs> oh, thank you. Bonjour. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and a lot of farmers were really doing quite well at that time. And so they're like, who the hell is this guy coming into our country telling us we need to know how to grow? And it really kind of was off-putting to a lot of people, but it really resonated. And in particular with my father, because what Iris Balin, that was that, that chef that was trained in France that met me at the farmer's market who said, grow without the chemical, grow without the synthetic fertilizer, grow for the flavor. And then Jean-Louis saying, you know, the way that you're growing in America is no good, grow for flavor. It resonated with my father because what he was suggesting had existed in America. We had just lost our way. And we moved away from that with the convenience factor, with production. Agriculture was what drew, what drove the economic engine in the United States, we could produce and we still produce food as it relates to our income. We produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income. Yet we have the highest health care. So, yes, Jean-Louis, we heard him speak. We grabbed, you know, literally around both of his ankles and said, we hear you now teach us. And Iris was the same. And then Jean-Louis was very different than other chefs. He, he recognized that you know, some chefs might say, well, look, I've got my own farmer. He can't produce enough for everybody. I'm going to keep him to myself. Jean-Louis knew that if he didn't give us enough business to keep us in business, that we couldn't do it. So he got on the phone and he called Danielle Ballou and Alain Ducasse and Jean-George von Richten, a lot of European chefs that had come to America and said, look, this guy's willing to do it the way we want him to do it. We need to support you. We need to support Farmer Lee Jones at the Chef's Garden. And they did. And they took us under their wing and they allowed us the existence and the ability to grow in the right way. Do we do everything right? No. Are we still learning? Yes. We're relearning what our great grandparents knew intuitively. So they've really allowed us an existence over the last 37 years. And 
So the idea was the idea was it was two things. It was like the way you were cultivating and the way that you were not using, you know, all those chemical products and you know that you were describing. And then at the same time you were growing specific, I'm sure, like varieties, you know, of vegetables and that um, the chef needed for their menus, correct? Well, right. And the varieties, they didn't necessarily know what varieties, but what they were telling us was flavor and quality okay. and consistency. And so what it meant for us, I mean, the very first thing that we grew for a chef was when Chef Iris Balin said, grow zucchini with blooms. And my dad had grown thousands of cases of zucchini just like your listeners would visualize going to Whole Foods or going to a grocery store and you get a seven or eight inch long cucumber that's two and a half inches around and they're all uniform and you pack 20 pounds in a case. My dad was an expert zucchini grower. We, we shipped truckloads of them, but we knew that you waited till the bloom fell off. The zucchini was longer and you picked it then. And here was this lady, you know, <laughs> with a chef's jacket on telling us she wanted the bloom. And I came home, home and told my dad about it and said, this lady's nuts. What's the matter with her? She, You don't eat the bloom. And I'm like, dad, no, she wants the zucchini pick the a size of your pinky and pick it when the bloom is wide open. And he said, just forget about it. She will never be back. She won't even remember the conversation. And, and uh, he actually told this story on Business Unusual on CNN. And he said, and we usually didn't have conversations more than once. And he was talking about telling me to forget this lady that she wouldn't be back. Well, <laughs> I picked the zucchini with the blooms exactly yeah. what she, the size she described. And we took them in and this, and she started screaming like someone had just stolen her purse. And she's like, Oh my God, I haven't seen anything like this since I've been in Europe. This is amazing. Exactly. I can't I mean, I was, believe it. And, you know, and, I was, and I was laughing because. Other, I'm laughing because, of course, it connects with my, you know, my background being French and living in Provence. And and obviously, there's traditional recipes where you feel, you know, the zucchini flowers. And this is yes. a, a delicious dish. So, <laughs> so yes. Well, and it goes back hundreds of years. It's not anything well, new. Absolutely. It's, you know, but um, I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. I was all these other farmers came running over because they thought something was wrong. And all the other farmers are laughing at me and I'm beat red embarrassed because <laughs> I have been called out. And they're like, what's the matter with you? Don't you know you picked a zucchini bigger than that? What's your problem? What do you, why don't you leave, why don't you take that and put it back on the plant and let it grow up? And, and she's like, no, 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 no. This is what, I'm, and they're like, yeah, this lady's nuts. And so I came back home. And I said, dad, she loved them. And she gave me 50 cents a piece for him. And he reared back in his chair and he had his jaw dropped open. He said, well, just how many of them does she want? <laughs> and so at that point, you know, he said, OK, there's a market here that we don't understand. So that following winter was and farmers, we tend to plan out your season in the winter and get ready for the next season. And so we asked her if we could buy some of her time. And of course, she knew we didn't have any money. But um, she said, I would love for you to come in. And we went in. She was actually a chef for a brokerage firm. There was this big, huge meeting table. It was intimidating and all these fancy chairs around it. And we set up a time and we loaded in our old pickup truck, three of us in the front seat of a pickup and drove into Cleveland. And 
she had been there for an hour and a half before she was so excited. And she had that table full of books marked to different pages for us. And man, we took, we left there. We probably had 15 pages of notes. And so I guess to get back to your original question, they didn't know the specific varieties, but what they were communicating to us was flavor. So we did do the zucchini. We actually did trials on 50 varieties of zucchini to find the variety that had the best flavor, that had the best quality of flour that would hold up the best. And so many of these, it, it's, it's, it's a way of life for us in experimentation and testing and tasting and, you know, putting it in a refrigerated area like a chef would to see how well it holds up and what's the best packaging, but also, you know, mostly and most important. The three most important things that we've heard from chefs over the last 37 years is flavor is most important. Second, flavor is second important. And third is flavor, 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 flavor. And that's really what we've, we've based every decision on was the flavor and the integrity of the product and how it's grown. And then 37 years after, and I would say before the crisis, so uh, the current crisis with the pandemic, they, this is, I mean, you are, you are working with most of like the chefs and like uh, the, you know, some of the big hotel chains like around the country, correct? That's right. Marriott's Four Seasons, St. Regis, Ritz-Carlton's. Absolutely. It, because consistency, consistency, food safety, quality, you know, they love to go to farmer's markets, but they go to a farmer's market on this Saturday. They get a product that they love. They take it in. They put it on a menu. Then they go back next Saturday, and the farmer's son had a baseball game, and they're not there that Saturday. And so now they don't have the product. So for us, you know, consistency, the food safety, the consistency, the quality. And you um, ship them in like 24 hours to them? That's the We, that's do, the we don't pick it. The beauty of ours is, you know, just like a lot of, Unlike a lot of companies that are sitting with warehouses with racks and everything's in inventory, our inventory is spread out over several hundred acres. And so we use, we try and use technology that's available to us today that wasn't available to our grandparents. And we use handheld scanners and we have growers that are responsible for different crops and they download those inventories that then get downloaded into the computer in the office. And so when a chef calls and puts an order in, each product has a product code and it creates what we call a pick list. So even before daylight, because we, we like to harvest very early in the morning at the lowest respiration rate of the day, the sun's been down all night and it's at its coolest point and you pick. So we don't execute the harvest of the product until there's an order for the product. And so we bring it in, we wash it, we clean it, we pack it, we ship it, and the chef has it the next day. Unbelievable shelf life. They don't lose, pro there is no perishability to it because they don't waste it. Because if you go through a, the chefs allow us to defy traditional distribution systems. Traditional distribution system is that product's going to be 10 days to two weeks old by the time a chef gets it in a traditional distribution system. This, the, the chefs allow us by working with us to give us um, an opportunity to really defy that system and create our own. The quality of the product starts with the quality, I guess, of the soil. And then so the idea is that uh, you're doing like in uh, 
going back to the traditional ways that how, you know you have a certain uh, you know number of acres that you cultivate and then other parts of the land that is not cultivated correct and you do some rotations of of culture uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that i'm probably not using well, the right terms <laughs> no that's okay we're actually a very small farm i think there's misconceptions because we've been around a while that we're a large corporation and we're a family farm and we have 350 acres under management which to a listener that doesn't maybe understand that sounds like a lot but we're surrounded by farms that are farming three to 5,000 acres to 10,000 acres. So in comparison, we're kind of like the flea on the end of the tail on the end of the dog. We're very small. But to make it even smaller, 350 acres, 250 acres of that in any one year is harvesting the sun's energy. And that sounds a little bit odd, but here's how it works. And it's our personal belief, not trying to cast my aspersions on anyone else, but it's our personal belief that God designed a system far superior to anything we can fake out chemically or synthetically. It's about working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. So just like if you were to go to the doctor, and I'm sure in any of our listeners at some point has has done this, but you get blood work on. And from that blood work, they can tell that you're high in iron, you're low in iron, you're high in calcium, you're low in calcium. They They can read what's going on within your body. And we do the same thing with the soil. And even the commercial chemical growers do that. In fact, chemical companies will supply that service for farmers and they'll do the soil test, they'll do an analysis and then say what application of synthetic fertilizers needs to go on. That's where ours and theirs differ. So we do the, we do the soil analysis based on the deficiencies that we find within the soil. Then we plant crop-specific. This is what's really cool. Based on the deficiency, we plant cover crops. Different types of plants will accept different types of energy from the sun. Buckwheat, clover, vetch, barley. We even have a 17-variety cover crop mix that we use to give us a... It's a it would be like, a, like us taking a multivitamin. The plants accept different types of energy from the sun. So based on the deficiency in the soil, you plant crop specific, you let that land sit fallow and let the plants, and, and if you can visualize the leaves of that plant as antenna or receptacles, they accept the energy through the leaves, into the stems, then down to the roots, and then into the soil. Then the next year, when we plant the turnip or the beet or the carrot or the radish or the zucchini or whatever it happens to be, it picks that back up. And when we eat it, it builds our immune system. Here's how I kind of compare it. The way that we're farming chemically and commercially today is much like our Western culture of medicine. Once we get sick, then a doctor prescribes a penicillin or a moxicillin or a viacillin. It's always treating the symptom. I compare that method of farming with what we're trying to do today is more like the Eastern culture. The Eastern culture and the Eastern philosophy is get the body in balance to defend against the disease in the first place. So we have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people. So if we can harvest that energy and pull it down into the soil and then plant the crop and it allows it to take that, those nutrients back up. And then when we consume them, it builds in our immune systems. We're the most sterile environment in the world and we're the most vulnerable. 
everything's so clean and we do things chemically and synthetically to control diseases. And, you know, we have quite a mess going. The future of uh, the food and the way how we eat is definitely the big trend is now that uh, everything is plant-based. You know, the protein source, you know, comes from plant versus, you know, versus meat. So do you think that this is something sustainable, the way the country is approaching farming today? Well, I think a couple of things. I think that this virus has been devastating and there's not any one of us that are immune from this. We have loved ones or we have friends that have been lost or are suffering from it. In some way, it's been devastating to all of us. I believe out of this devastation, out of the ashes of this horrible situation, there will be good things that will come of this. Part of the reason, and this is just a farmer's theory, part of the reason is because our immune systems are so compromised. I think that we've allowed disconnects in a lot of different ways. We've allowed disconnects with where our food sources are coming from. I think that people are reconnecting and we're concerned. We're seeing people cooking. Oh my gosh, everybody's cooking. And it's, it's wonderful to people, for people to, you know, kind of re, reimagine and reinvent, you know, their stoves and getting intimate with their stoves and cooking. You know, we all know, of course, about the, the toilet paper shortages, but I've even heard of flour shortages, which is kind of exciting to think about. But I think that there'll be good that comes out of this. We have to, we have to be optimistic about this and, and say that there's, there's something good that's going to come from this. And I think people are reconnecting with where food is coming from. I think that they're going to realize the importance of knowing who the grower is, where the food's coming from. Uh, so I think that, you know, that's going to be positive. And I mean, this is what you think is going to, you know, change after the, the pandemic, because we see the change of like, people's behavior. And yes, like knowing where they're the source of, you know, what they're eating, you know, coming from is becoming more and more important. But what would you personally would like to see change, you know, after this pandemic crisis is over? Yeah, well, I mean, so many different things. I mean, one of the things that I think is going to be positive out of this, of course, after the, the big war. World War II, the Victory Gardens, people planted gardens because resources yep, were yep. short and everybody planted gardens. And you know mm -hmm. what? Kids do what their parents do. They want to emulate what their parents do. They emulate what they say. They emulate what they do. They emulate what's important to them. I believe that parents that are at home right now are interested and will be, I believe there will be more gardens planted this year, mm -hmm. perhaps than in the history of the United States. And I guess see, what? We see that on uh, on the Instagram already. You know, you were talking about people yeah. cooking. There's more and more of this uh, post. Yeah. And as well, there's more and more posts of people, um, you know, growing or starting to prepare, let's say, their garden, you know, and plant their own veggies. So, yeah. But think about this. Think about how exciting this is. Those parents who are interested in planting a garden. Well, guess what? Joey and Susie want to be out there to help mom and dad plant the garden. If mom and dad are interested in planting the garden, the kids are going to be there planting a garden and we are going to create a whole entire generation of gardeners because once they garden as a child and they learn how fun that is, they understand that a carrot comes from the soil and when they can go with mom and dad and harvest that and bring it in and cook it and then eat it and realize how good it is and they have a connection with where the food's coming from and how it's grown and how much work it takes to grow it. Now we have got from 
four years old, from three years old on up, kids that are working with mom and dad and planting that garden, we've got a generation of gardeners. I think that that in itself is a beautiful thing, understanding where your food's coming from. And uh, I, I think that, you know, that's just that's just one thing out of many things that are going to happen. I think the, that we're going to see restaurants are going to present food in different ways. I think that there's going to be a lot of change. You know, I mean, the, the goal is for us to understand where it's going. And for farmers, if we don't figure out how to adapt and change and understand where that market's going, you either adapt and change or you die. And, you know, we're in the middle of having to figure that out, just like everybody exactly. else. Exactly. You are in the middle of this pandemic and then you decided to uh, to pivot your your business and, and you guys decided to emphasize like the delivery of your great produce like directly to consumers now. That's right. We we within 24 hours of the of really getting a full grasp of what was going on, 100% of our customer base was gone. Our revenue stopped coming in. You have a farm, you do not put a farm on furlough. It's kind of like a relationship. I'm going to refer to the farm in the female gender. She she needs to be loved. She needs to be coddled and nurtured and tended to and cared for on a daily basis. You don't just flip the switch off and walk away and then say, okay, pandemic's over. We're going to come back and expect her to be, you know, uh, receiving you with open arms. You just can't walk away. And there's an intimacy with a farmer and her her farm or their farm, because you have to love it and nurture it every day. And in addition to the fact that we had to pivot to be able to generate income, because everything that we do is by hand. We have 150 family team members. They're not all blood family, but they're family to us. There's 150 team members on our farm. And we had to figure out, we have a responsibility to those team members to keep, you know, to keep them with income. So the pivot was to be able to go. We thought that it was a, an ethically responsible thing for our team members and for our farm, but also for people that needed healthy, nutritious, safe vegetables. In many cases, people don't have the availability. I was talking to a, a chef friend of mine and he lives in a neighborhood in New York and there's a line of an hour and a half to two hours. They only let one or two people in the store at a time to get groceries and you're having to be exposed. This allows us to be able to harvest fresh product, to ship it directly to anybody and it goes to their apartment or their front porch and it goes direct from our farm to that individual. And they get a box that's, you know, something that they can eat out of for four or five meals. And it's, it's, it's our goal. And I believe it's the most nutritious, best flavored vegetables that exist in America. So let's let's talk about like uh, you know the site for instance for the people that are listening so they they can go and see that on chefs plural chefs dash garden dot com and um, you know then you have created like a series of boxes that anyone can order as you said and they will be delivered you know to their door uh, their doorstep in like twenty four hours can you tell us more about how you guys came up with that decision and and what is that that you offer you know, in, uh, in those different select, because you have 12 choices, uh, you know, of, of uh, boxes, boxes in, in there. Well, um, a couple of different things. We have felt like 
for several years that the health and wellness and uh, most and nutritious vegetables were ultimately where we needed to go. It is our vision that within our lifetime that doctors will be rep- recommending a parsnip rather than penicillin. We actually did a trademark on pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. We haven't really done much with it yet, but you can kind of get an understanding of our thought process. We put a laboratory in two years ago. We have five scientists on staff. We are testing nutrient nutrient density. We have a lot yet to learn, but we're trying to understand what's working in our soil, in our seed selection, in our handling of the product. But, you know, set aside from that, we're finding out some really interesting things and finding out what works and what doesn't work and how to affect the nutrition of the vegetable. No GMO, not voodoo. I'm talking about really getting an understanding. We're, you know, there's technology that we're using in this lab that isn't new technology, but it's new technology to uh, measuring nutrient, nutrient densities. There are uh, actually some technology from the forensic world. We're using centrifuges where we're breaking these the products down and separating all of the different components and measuring those. We're measuring the gases off of a, a plant once we uh, cook it and then measure the gas. But the idea is is to be able to grow the most nutritious product that we can. We did a test the other day on carrots, and our carrots were testing 300, 300 times higher in beta carotene than the USDA average. So the idea is, is to be able to really flesh out the most nutritious vegetables humanly possible and make them available at affordable price for, for individuals. So you're doing this by combining the, I mean, varieties and as well, you know, obviously the way you, you cultivate the, the vegetables, correct? Right. And, and there's enormous amounts of research that's already been done where they're saying that if you consume things from the cruciferous family, arugulas, different combinations of vegetables will help you boost your immune system. There's a lot of research. This isn't our thought. This is research that's been done way previous to us. And so we've put combinations. We have an immune boosting box that has cruciferous greens in it, that has arugula in it, that has garlic in it, that has different things that the combination of things that we put in the immune boosting box there's research and proof to show that these vegetables will help you build your immune system. Um, so what is on the, have, uh, anti, the anti-aging? I may, I may have to order that one. Right. <laughs> so what, and there's an anti-aging there? box. And again, I can't recite everything that's in each of these individual boxes, but okay. we actually had the help of some doctors, Dr. Bob, and he has a location in Westlake and in Naples. And they approached us and they had heard about it. And these guys are hardcore serious about what they put in their bodies and mm-hmm. they came they toured they understood that we took them through the laboratory and then we sent them home with some of the vegetables and about three days later they called and they're like oh my god we have sourced out the healthiest the organic vegetables that we could find anywhere and these are the best that we've ever tasted and they could actually feel a difference in their energy levels and they said we want to make this product available to our customers, to their clients. And so they actually have it on their website and make it available. And this was before COVID. And so we said, well, then I think this is the direction we need to go to. And of course, so it was an easy thought process for us to to make this pivot. There's a pick of the day, which is just 
a walk through our garden. We walk through the garden and what looks the very best today. And that's going to change. If we get three days of 60 degrees, we're going to be harvesting green and white and purple asparagus. Asparagus, I'm waiting for that. (laughs) Yeah, so are we, and very anxiously. So, you know, that pick of the day box is our walk through the garden and what looks the best today. And we're going to harvest that. We're going to package it and put it in a box and we're going to send it to you. And you're going to have the pick of the day. So, I mean, I received, I received like the spinach and I have to say, I I haven't seen those spinach quality in a very long time. I mean, the way how thick those leaves, uh, you know, were and the crunchiness aspect of it and the way how, you know, when you break them and so on, they they were fantastic. I mean, I, I cannot judge about like the impact on my health, but. I can judge the impact on what I put in my mouth and uh, definitely the the taste of those spinach were, were fantastic. So, I, oh my I gosh, I mean, what you get different, you know, what you get in the store in the plastic bags where it's grown in high volumes, it's shaped, the leaves are small, they're shaped like a spoon. There's absolutely no body to it. And it sits in your refrigerator for three to four days and it starts to deteriorate and you have to sort the yellow leaves out of it. This has got crunch and body and texture and flavor and vitamins in it. I mean, it's just full of health. It's actually a variety that we um, call ice spinach. The spinach that you got in your your bag and what we're harvesting right now to send out is spinach that we planted last fall. It freezes at night. It thaws during the day. It freezes at night. It thaws during the day. And ice, it's ice spinach is based on the same concept as ice wine. They harvest a grape when it's frozen and it's at its highest sugar levels. We tested with a refractometer or refractometer the spinach the other day. It's testing as sweet as a red delicious apple. That's a fact. It's it's measuring between a 10 and a 13 on a refractometer. Any of your listeners, it's a cheap investment for like 50 to $100. And of course, you can pay even higher for better ones. For 50 bucks, you can buy a refractometer or refractometer. It measures bricks, B-R-I-X. I would encourage anybody that's really serious about food to buy one of these refractometers and have it at home. You can actually take it to a grocery store. If you got a pair of pliers or a vice grip, you take a leaf, you squeeze a little drop of it, and basically what it does is measures the amount of light density through the pulp, and it'll give you a reading and tell you the sweetness factor of it. Have you ever got a cantaloupe home and it's like, oh, my God, there's no flavor? You know, you can test those, the sugar levels on this stuff and find out what you've got. Beside those boxes, you have a, a program at the moment, which is in, in five weeks, which is the small farm provisions. And this is collaboration with Chef Thomas Kellers and other chefs. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, those? I, I had mine boxes and they were mind blowing. So, Well, absolutely. We've been you know, grateful. We've looked up to Thomas. Thomas, actually, we built a facility 20 years ago called the Culinary Vegetable Institute. Thomas Keller, Daniel Ballou, Alain Ducasse, Charlie Trotter, Jean-Georges Rong Richten, Chef Ed Brown, all chefs that were mentors to me were on that advisory board to build the Culinary Vegetable Institute. And so they've been like big brothers to me or fathers to me in mentoring and taking us under the wing because Without them, you know, and other chefs throughout the country, we wouldn't have existed and we wouldn't have had a chance to come back as a small family farm. But I reached out to Thomas early on in this pandemic and said, you know, we're in trouble. All the restaurants are closed. We need help. 
And he came up with the idea. And I had just sent him a box like you received and said, you know, could you do a shout out on your social media? And he said, sure, of course I can. And he did that. But then he called back a couple of days later. He says, hey, I've got an idea. Keith Martin from Elysian Farms, purebred lamb, is in the same boat as you. All of his customers are chefs. He says, how about if we put together five chefs? And of course, Elysian Farms is small like us, and they can't process a lot of animal at one time. So each chef developed a recipe and a menu around a certain part of the lamb. So it gave Keith and his team in Pennsylvania time to be able to process one part of the animal. And then Thomas put together a menu with different vegetables and created a, a dinner recipe with one part of the animal and our vegetables. And then he pushed that out on his social. The next week, then it was Gavin Kaysen. And then, you know, Chef, Chef Corey Chow. Yeah. Corey Chow. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, Tim Hollinsworth and then Daniel Ballou, each part mm-hmm. using it each chef using a different part of the animal and different recipes with ours. So you can actually go online of each of those chefs and see their menu and uh, watch them cook that dish. And then you can go online at chef's dash garden and get the lamb. The lamb producer lives close enough to us that he brings those portions over. They're sealed and contained. They go in our box along with our vegetables and you can get them delivered right to your door. It's pretty amazing. Absolutely. You know, I, I've cooked those um, in the past, like uh, different weekends. And uh, I mean, the, the, the recipes are amazing. The quality of the produce are, are fantastic. So uh, I encourage everyone to, uh, you know, to order and, and test them. And do you think you will continue those, uh, let's say, theme boxes, you know, after those uh, five weeks? Absolutely. I think we will. Absolutely. We're going to be doing a Mother's Day gift for Mother's Day coming up. And it's going to have our, our vegetables and asparagus and our honey. And uh, uh, the edible flowers are certainly not selling right now because those more go in fine dining. So we've been harvesting them off or doing what we call deadheading, because if you don't pick the flowers off, then the plant goes down. So we have to pick those off and we've been drying them. And we're actually partnering with Rod at Rare Tea Cellars out of Chicago, who's one of the foremost tea guys in the country. And uh, we're doing a blend with our edible flowers and some of his amazing tea. And we're offering, going to have tea in those. And it, it's going to be a nice Mother's Day gift box. So, yes, I think we're going to do a vegetable and caviar pairing coming up. That's going to be kind of exciting. We're actually doing a partnership right now with a wine pairing with a company that's producing some amazing wine. And they did the pairings with the vegetables and the wine. So I think it's a limitless. It's up to only our, limited by only our imagination. So, I mean, this uh, pandemic in, uh some sort has um, opened the door for maybe like different opportunities, you know, for you guys, even if I understand the situation is really bad at the moment. I'm thinking that you probably will continue the, this home delivery business when we will return to whatever is like the new norm. We will. This is not going to go away when the restaurants come back. We're developing a new marketing channel. We want a relationship with the end user. And I think that the end user wants to know where the food's coming from. And We hope that they work with other small farms like us that are suffering and struggling out there and reconnect and get to your farmer's markets. We encourage that. We know we're not the only answer, but we know we think that maybe we're part of the solution. And we'd like to be a small part of uh, um, every listener's, um, you know, future culinary life. And yeah, I think that it does open doors. We've 
we've had conversations and turned over rocks and had discussions with people we never dreamed of having before the pandemic. And, you know, out of, out of the ashes of this horrible pandemic, there will be things that will occur that will be good. And the new norm is going to look different than, than the norm in the past. Yeah, and everyone should go and at least try to get one of your books on chefs-garden.com. Absolutely, that's something that they, they, they should be doing. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the Culinary Vegetable Institute? What's the mission of, uh, of this institute? Well, the, the Culinary Vegetable Institute's initial vision was a, a place for the foremost chefs in the country to be able to come and to do experimentation and research and to be able to play. It's an R&D lab. Uh, we have relationships with culinary equipment companies that have the best of the best and the newest ideas from centrifuges. You know, I mean, you, it's just unbelievable. And our chef, it's Jamie it's on Simpson, the, it's on over the there. Farm, right? It's on the farm. It's on right? the farm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We have a, normally we have about 600 visiting chefs a year. Grant Atkins brought his entire opening team before they opened Alinea in Chicago and spent three days doing menu development and playing with ingredients. And then seven years later, Curtis Duffy, who was on Grant's opening team, came with his opening team from Grace. And he's planning his next trip back because he'll be opening ever pretty soon. But the idea was originally for chefs to be able to come. It's evolved into a place where we do corporate R&D and corporate retreats. We had Barilla Pasta brought 16 of their corporate chefs, like the corporate chef from TGI Fridays, the corporate chef from Macaroni Grill, corporate chefs from that are customers that are big users of pasta. And they came out, they toured the farm, they came, they worked together and they cooked and experimented with all these different ways that pasta could be used. So corporations come and bring their guests as a, you know, the, what most of them usually did for many years was go out to Greystone and then toward the Napa Valley. There's only so many times you want to do that. And so this really gives corporations an alternative to be able to come. And it's kind of nice. You know, they kind of have a captive audience because, you know, you're out in the farm. And so they're not getting wandering off into a, a bar or some other thing. They're focused on really building the relationships. It's about relationship building and learning different ways to be able to use ingredients. So, And do you think you're going to have the, the root conference in September this year? Do you think it's going to be I possible? I don't know. That's, you don't know yet. That's, a burning, that's a burning question right now. Yeah. I don't know. We, we hope to. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. Can you tell us a little bit what the, the conference is for the listener? The conference, yep. Uh, this will be our fifth year. We skipped last year because we were in the middle of a contract with a book that we agreed to do. It's, it's about a, um, right now, about an 800-page book on everything you can imagine about vegetable. It's designed to be the authority on vegetable in America. It is a great resource book for anybody that has any interest in anything from gardening to cooking. That's for 2021, correct? The book. It's That's going to come not, out in spring of okay. 2021, right? Okay. But um, the Roots Conference is to bring the really the shakers, the movers, the thinkers, the things that haven't even really made mainstream yet, that I, guys are out there, ladies and gentlemen are out there doing things that they're meaningful to them, they're passionate about, they're innovative, cutting edge ideas 
uh, Native American cuisine. We did that four or five years ago. It's kind of hitting center stage now and, and preserving these varietals. So crickets, we did crickets five years ago, you know, and it's one of the most nutritious things that you can consume. You can grind it into a flour and it's got more protein in it than any meat that you can consume. It could, it has the potential to save th third world countries. So it's things that people are doing or working on or considering. And then the networking of somebody talking, you know, to somebody else. It's like, Oh, you're working on that. I've been working on it. Here's what I found. The networking is worth the price of admission. And it's a two day, day and a half, two day event. You come out, you're on the farm, you share ideas and we have speakers and uh, it's just, it's just an, an amazing day and a half, great speakers and networking. Okay. So hope, hope that you, yeah, that's uh, you cross the fingers that uh, you can have yeah. it, um, you know, this year. So family Jones, we have been talking for about almost an hour and I would like to um, give you back your freedom. And, but before that, would you mind answering a series of rapid fire questions? Okay, sure. Are you okay with that? Yeah. So I'm, cu do you, I'm curious, do you cook yourself? I do. Okay. So what do you like to make? What's your favorite I'm the, uh, recipe? I'm the king of leftovers. Uh, You're king of all that. That's important now. I'm the king now, of leftovers. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and my, my son and my wife always joke about that, that I'm the king of leftovers. So I always take whatever's left over and I create something new out of whatever's there. And I love to love to. So come what up have you made recently? Dish. What have you made recently <laughs> with leftovers? Oh my gosh! I, it, you know what? Everything blurs together. All the meals blur together. <laughs> uh, <we're laughs> I put you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like no, nothing specific come to mind. Okay, no. So no. what's what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Well, I had some, uh, my sister made buttermilk pie and I had it for breakfast this morning. And my, and my aunt's recipe, my grandmother's recipe, my grandma's gone, but my aunt makes the most amazing peanut butter chocolate fudge. Wow. That sounds fantastic. Yes. From everything that you have done with the chefs and all the requests that you receive, what was, can you, you remember maybe what one of your favorite chef requests you got? Oh my gosh. There's been so many. I mean, a chef in New York City asked me to send him a Christmas tree one time. I mean, we have done everything. We I, Early on, we don't do it anymore for food safety, but a chef requested live turkeys. And uh, this was when we were still delivering with our trucks. And I have a picture with a turkey and I have it in a crate and its head sticking up out through the crate. And I've got the crate closed with a uh, duct tape. And it, so I delivered uh, live turkeys and live ducks to this chef in Columbus. And uh, he opened the box and one of the ducks flew out and took off to the to a nearby pond. And so we lost that uh, lost that duck. So, I mean, chefs have been our uh, they've been so great to us and they've they've asked us to do things for them. And um, we've been grateful for the opportunity to be a small part of their teams. And we love chefs. What is beside like the rooster and the Christmas tree, the stranger things that you have cultivated? I mean, not that you have cultivated, obviously, the turkey, but. Anything? Well, a, lot of, um, a lot of times it's um, it's looking at a plant in a different way than we've ever considered it. There's kind of the traditional norms that we have an expectation of uh, 
of things at a certain size or a certain stage. And we have a saying on the farm, and the chefs really helped us develop that thought process is that at every single stage of a plant's life, it offers something unique to the plate. I don't know if you've you've had a garden and, and a radish has shot, shot what they call a seed stalk. Once it shoots a seed stalk, it goes to bloom because it's trying to, the goal of a plant is to produce a mature seed. And once it shoots a seed stalk, it's no longer, the radish is no longer good to take to market. The, the radish becomes pithy and hollow, but it's got this enormous stalk with all these amazing blooms. And the cruciferous do the same thing. And we were plowing under a field because it had shot a seed stalk. And I had the chef in the truck with me and my brother was plowing the field under and he jumps out of the truck before it's even stopped. And, he's, and he runs in front of the tractor and waves him down. He's like, why are you plowing this under? And he got out and he tasted it. And he's like, do you realize what I can do with this on the plate? And it was kale that had gone to bloom, a beautiful, bright yellow flower that uh, that adds amazing flavor to a stir fry or any any dish that you can imagine. So looking at those plants in a different way than we've maybe traditionally considered them, I think is exciting. The The root of a garlic, we pulled the garlic up and saw the root and we now harvest the root and it's one of a... One of our most popular things is the garlic root. So really looking at that plant differently. And the final one, what frustrates you the most in the farming industry today? Uh, you know what? Frustrations are small things um, because you just, you have to continue to, you have to be an internal optimist on the farm. One of my personal things is that I have a saying, when asparagus is in season, we should consume it three times a day. When it's out of season, we should lust for it for 10 more months. <laughs> Mother Nature, Mother Nature provides such a natural rhythm to what we should be consuming at any one time. Allow Mother Nature to dictate what your menus are. Under, for, for me, and I think it's gotten much better in the last five years for chefs to understand what's in season. What frustrates me is seeing asparagus coming in from Peru or Chile or Ecuador when it's out of season, and then when it's in season, it's not celebrated. Celebrate Mother Nature's seasons. There's a natural rhythm. And our bodies, if we'll really get in tune with our bodies and listen to our bodies, our bodies will crave certain foods. And your body, some I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where there's times where I just need kale or I need beets. There's certain minerals or components within those foods that your body is telling you you need. And Mother Nature will provide that. Yeah. I mean, it's just be in tune with your body, be in tune with Mother Nature. You know, I always like to take anything, a problem or a frustration and turn it into an opportunity. So I would say my biggest opportunity rather than frustration is, is that there's an opportunity for people to have a better understanding of when food is in season and how to celebrate that. I think that we should finish with those words, Farmer Lee Jones and... Uh... I have to say that I appreciate and I can tell that we're on the farm. I can hear the rooster in the, you know, in the background. That reminds me <laughs> a lot of yeah. my youth, um, you know, in the northeast part of France yeah. with a little village when um, there was a lot of farms as well. So um, thank you so much uh, for being a guest, uh, you know, on the show. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to receive my, my ne next box here in, in New Jersey. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode with Farmer Lee Jones from the Chef's Garden, please share it with a friend or a colleague. Word of mouth goes a long way, and I love to welcome new listeners to the show. 
If you want to learn more about what we talked about today, visit our website, flavorsunknown.com. In two weeks, my guest will be artisan baker Mathieu Cabon from Magnol Bakery in Houston. We will talk about bread and croissants. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.